So my name is Lissa Melanakos, and I know several people in the room. Uh, I have a kind of long connection with Harbor City because my sisters, my two older sisters, used to attend here way back in the day before they moved to uh, North County. So um, some familiar faces, but I haven't been here in a long time. So um, I'm with two organizations that work with the homeless. One is the Ladle Fellowship at First Presbyterian Church just kind of on the opposite corner of downtown. We have a big homeless outreach ministry there. We host meals a couple times a week, and my role is to connect with people during those big community events and then help navigate them through the homeless services system during the rest of the week. And then I'm also with the Downtown Fellowship of Churches and Ministries, of which Harbor City is actually a member. Downtown Fellowship brings together churches, nonprofits, and other agencies in the downtown area in order to bring people together for service to the most vulnerable in our city. So Harbor City has been a part of that organization for a long time since its beginning with the Ewees. Um, and so Downtown Fellowship also runs what we call the mentorship program, which pairs up individuals who are in transition out of homelessness who are in the middle stage of staying at a shelter before they move into their own housing those individuals up with volunteers from the community, many of whom come from churches in our network of churches. So I just want to throw that out at the beginning because if, if you end up walking away from today asking yourself how you can get involved or what may be some avenues of entry into the world of homeless ministry, mentorship is the thing I want to plug the most because I think it's the coolest thing to just sit down with one person one-on-one, -on -one, hear somebody's story, get to know an individual, and over time, build a relationship that can become a friendship that can be really transformative for both people. So I want to throw that out there from the beginning. Um, just a little bit of background about myself. I'm from San Diego, North County. Um, I spent a good amount of time in Central America after I graduated high school in a very poor community in Honduras. And that was kind of my first really immersion experience into poverty work. Since then, I've worked in various areas of social services in San Diego, foster care system, juvenile justice system, um, children experiencing homelessness, and now in my current role in uh, homeless ministry. So through all of those experiences, um, I really believe that God has given me a calling to the poor, to understand poverty, and to bring together people across lines of economic and social divide, especially in the church. I really believe that churches ought to be a place where rich and poor come together and humanize each other and don't just see each other as groups with little understanding. And the church ought to be you know, an exemplary location where that happens, where people of diverse backgrounds and life experiences come together and get to know each other and build real relationships. So that's doing that, helping people come together and humanize each other is, is a real passion of mine. Okay, that's who I am. Um, I'm gonna talk to you about homelessness today. Hopefully you know that if you're here. Um, I, don't, I don't think I need to make a big case about why you should care about homelessness because you all go to church in East Village so homelessness is all around you, at least on Sundays. 
If you're a San Diegan, it's probably all around you during the rest of your week as well. So as a San Diegan, there's a reason to care about homelessness. But especially as a Christian, there's a huge reason to care about the poor. You can't read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John without walking away with this deep impression that Jesus cares about the poor and wants his disciples to care deeply about the poor, the marginalized, the least of these. It's really written into the DNA of our faith that our love for God expresses itself in our love for neighbor, especially our neighbor who's suffering and who's outside the in crowd of our society. And here in San Diego, the number one group that's at the top of that list is the homeless. So as Christians, this ought to be something that we care about, that we talk about, that we get involved in personally and as churches, as communities. So that's kind of my case for why homelessness is important. I think probably if you're here, you don't need me to persuade you too much, but it's, it's important to us as a community of San Diego. It's important to us as Christians. One quick note is on the terminology that we use when we talk about people. I'm not one to say that one particular term is always the right term. I think it depends on the context and what you're trying to say. I just want to start out this morning with a, a note that the terms that we use to talk about other groups of people sometimes can give us away in what, in what we really think about those groups. Um, sometimes when we use words like homeless people or transients, just that use of language can give ourselves away as sort of seeing them as not a part of our community as outsiders. Um, or not as people first, um, as fellow human beings. So some other options are unsheltered people or unhoused people. The homeless community, which some people who experience homelessness are a part of the homeless community because they've been homeless for a long time. Some people who experience homelessness maybe don't see themselves as a part of that community as much. Or just a phrase like people who don't have stable housing right now. People who don't have a place to call home. People who don't have a place to you know, stay safe every night. Phrases like that, that emphasize that these are people. These are our neighbors. These are people who could become our friends. Again, the, the exact term isn't the point. It's more just the sort of a, the willingness to critique ourselves and critique our language and make sure that we're, we're thinking about people as people first, as opposed to just a problem or an issue or an external um, social ill. So here, here are our three goals for today. I like to keep it organized so everybody knows where we're going. <laughs> Number one goal is to humanize, like I said, humanize and contextualize the homelessness problem. By contextualize, I mean Hopefully we'll all walk away today with a better sense of how do people end up in this situation that if we haven't come close to the brink like that may seem very foreign or hard to understand. So just to increase our understanding of what it's like to be homeless and how people become homeless. Number two, to empower us all as Christians to more confidently relate to and serve people who experience homelessness and extreme poverty. I think a lot of times just the fear of not knowing what to do 
or not knowing how to interact with people can be the biggest barrier to our ability to minister to others. So hopefully to just build everybody's confidence and understanding so that it's not as intimidating to engage with people and engage in ministry. And then number three, this is why I mentioned mentorship at the beginning, I'm hoping to inspire at least just a couple of you guys to think about how you might become personally involved in some type of homeless ministry. If it's the mentorship program that Downtown Fellowship runs, that would be awesome. If it's some other form of, of ministry to the homeless, maybe right here in East Village outside your doors of this church, that would be great as well. So hopefully we'll all walk away with better understanding, better confidence, and, and more um, hope for how we can become personally engaged in this. So first let's talk about humanizing homelessness. Again, when people have life experiences that are very different from our own, it can be hard for us to relate. And we, when we find it hard to relate to people, it can be easy to not see them as equals to us or as fellow human beings that we can you know, empathize with. So a big part of, even before talking about getting engaged in, in homeless ministry or in, in uh, serving the homeless, We've got to first increase our understanding of what it's really like to be homeless. So here's the question I want to ask is, what is homelessness really like? I think for a lot of us who haven't ever experienced it, it can be easy to jump immediately to thinking about the really tangible, material aspects of homelessness. Not having a bed, not having a warm place to go when it's cold not having three steady meals every day, etc. Obviously, all those things are really critical components of homelessness. But I want to broaden our perspective a little bit, which I'm going to do with this two-minute video, which is an interview of various people who have experienced homelessness, asking them the question, what does homelessness mean to you? from one place to one place, you know, living under the bridge, that type. But, I mean, I did that. I, I, I stayed outside for a couple months, you know, and it was cold out there. You know, I was, you know, they had nowhere to go. Homelessness is a very dark place. It takes a long time to unravel. It takes a long time to come to a light. It's a lot of high feelings. It's not so, it, It's a place where you feel uh, so comfortable that you allow the devil to become your best friend. To me, it was not being able to provide what I should have been providing for my child. What I mean to me, might be that anybody else is basically not having the help. But to me, it means basically having everything that you love or cherish just ripped right from underneath you. Like it feels like it feels like nothing. Like nothing. It just means um you're running. You don't know what you're running from, but you're running from 
something that's your past or, you know, it, it just means you're not ready to turn your life a little over to God. Homeless to me means you don't have, you lost respect for yourself. You think you're down about yourself. You're down about not having a job, not working, not having a car. And, it, and it's scary. That's the biggest thing. It's, it's very, very scary. Notice the words that people use to describe their experience. Lack of support, lack of stability, darkness, hiding feelings, nothingness running from your past, lack of self-respect, shame. All those words are focusing a lot more on the psychological, social, and spiritual aspect of homelessness more so than just on the material or physical lack of shelter, clothing, food. You notice how the, the emphasis was on this, this shame, embarrassment, you know, lack of self-respect, on the sense of darkness, distance from God, you know, uh, and then also the distance from other people, feeling like you're running, you can't express your feelings. That's what homelessness means to a lot of people. Here are some quotes from a, from a couple different sources about people describing their experience. This was an article that was in the Washington Post, if you can find it, it was super eye-opening. Lori Yearwood talks about her experience of being homeless. She said, I mostly stopped talking when I became homeless. What I had to say no longer seemed to matter. It's very difficult to stay anchored in your body as a homeless person because it's too painful to feel your body when you can't house it or feed it or feel safe in it. That's talking about this psychological, mental stress of constantly being on guard, being vigilant, and what that does to a person's mental state, especially over time. One of the participants in our mentorship program described how he, you know, people he'd been friends with for years, he lived in OB his entire life, he was a part of the community there. He ran into a series of financial problems that put him on the street, and he said his whole network of friends, his whole community just evaporated because people didn't want to take on the responsibility of trying to help him get out of homelessness. And he just, he, he was so shocked and disturbed that people who had known him for so long didn't want to know him anymore when he was in this crisis. So there's this huge social alienation, loss of friends, loss of community, loss of family that goes along with homelessness. This quote is from a letter I got from one of our guests while he was in jail reflecting on his most recent episode of homelessness and he said there I was under the bridge alone with my thoughts alone with my <coughs> drugs and my porn hopeless just waiting to die when I tried talking to God one more time the spiritual darkness the spiritual pain of of being so trapped in addiction and feeling so powerless to get out of that and wondering you know, how can I call myself a Christian? How can I be a part of the church? How can I reach out to God again and again and again? 
that spiritual pain is a, is a huge part of many people's homelessness. I've heard, I've heard these type of comments from, from a lot of different people. Homelessness is in the Bible. Did you guys know that? I won't read this whole story. I'll just remind you of, of the episode in the Gospel of Mark when Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, is outside Jericho, which is both sort of literal and symbolic of the fact that he's outside the rest of the community. He's on the margin. The, the, the rest of the people in Jericho shush him, tell him to go away, stop bothering Jesus. But Jesus stops what he's doing, stops in his tracks, personally speaks to this man, you know, engages with him, ignores the naysayers, asks him what he wants, and then ends up healing him. And I love this part of the end. When Jesus heals him, he says, Go, your faith has healed you. Immediately, Bartimaeus received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Interestingly, he doesn't go back to Jericho, the, the community that he was probably from and had been sort of marginalized out of. He leaves Jericho completely behind because he's found someone who sees him, who loves him, who's, you know, who engages with him. And that's the guy that he wants to follow. So he just, he just leaves everything behind and follows Jesus. So Jesus, of course, exemplifies here what we're going to be talking about for the next 45 minutes or an hour of this stopping and seeing the individual person, even when there may be other concerns, there may be social dynamics at play, other people who aren't, uh, who aren't interested in this particular individual. But Jesus stops and has this encounter. I want to take a minute to talk about specifically the culture that goes along with chronic homelessness. Now, chronic homelessness refers to people who have been homeless for a long time, years. Um, and it also almost always includes some sort of disabling condition, which can include physical disability, mental disability, or a disabling addiction. Any of those three, often a combination of all three. Now, most people who experience homelessness do not fall into this category. Many more people are homeless for a few months and then are able to resolve their homelessness. Even when that happens multiple times in a person's life, that's not the same thing as the chronically homeless community, which is the most visible form of homelessness. So when, we, when we're walking out and about and we see people with signs or uh, you know, group camps of people all gathered together under a tarp, that's the most visible face of homeless, homelessness that we think of. And that's this category, chronic homelessness, out there for years and years, extremely alienated from the larger community. Now, but, but I do want to clarify that many more people experience homelessness who just aren't as visible as, as this component of the homeless population. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
So the culture of chronic homelessness, so it's lengthy homelessness plus disabling conditions. It's a, a really high level of alienation from normal societal systems. What I mean by that is um, just a sort of general lack of participation in the systems that all the rest of us are a part of. Um, you know, not just jobs and housing, although those two things, yes, but also you know, bank accounts, uh, having a primary care doctor, um, having a phone, having an email, um, having transportation, you know, just all the systems that all of us are a part of. This group, the, the chronically homeless, is largely outside all of those systems. I, I'm pretty sure that these are the only people in San Diego who are still using pay phones. <laughs> and they are. I don't know anyone else who ever uses a payphone, but um, many folks in this community are, you know, outside the system enough to where that's often their only form of communication. Um, within this sort of subculture, there are sort of alternative family structures and community structures that people develop. I mean, there are there are a lot of people who have been on the streets more or less their entire lives. A lot of kids who aged out of foster care 30, 40 years ago and have been out there since then. When, when you're out on the streets for that long, people develop different forms of, of family and community and there, there's all these sort of cultural norms that go along with that subculture of the chronically homeless. I won't go into all these details, but um, you know, the, the role of the street mom, sort of an older woman who has younger folks around her who are really attached to her and it's their job to keep her safe, that's a, that's a feature of this culture, the chronically homeless community, that you'll see a lot with people who have a street mom. Um, lots of other roles like that, uh, you know, our alternative family and community structures in this severely alienated and marginalized population. People in this category, these are often the, you know, <laughs> the people that are there difficult to help because of this alienation from the larger system of society. It's hard to get somebody who's been out on the streets in a completely different sort of form of community and culture to get them to go through our very complex and overwhelming systems such as the healthcare system or the homeless services system where it's a lot of um, paperwork and calling, you know, remembering to call phone numbers and receiving voicemails and doing emails and it's just, it can be very overwhelming and, and very foreign to people who have been homeless for a long time. And it's hard to help because all of our systems that we all navigate, you know, we know how to do that. We know how to answer emails, et cetera. Um, so th there's other reasons why this population can be hard to help, but that's a huge one, is the alienation from sort of how the rest of society runs. I want to stop here and just see if there's any questions about this whole idea of chronically homeless and kind of the the homeless community that has been out there for a long time. Does anybody have any questions about that? Can you give us a percent now? I imagine you 
of San Diego. Of what these are of the 100%. Yeah, I think last year's numbers, it was 3,000 chronically homeless and about 10,000 total, so 30%. Um, it's really hard to count sometimes because on both ends, it's sometimes the chronically homeless are so removed from society that they're out in the canyons, they're under the bridges, they're hard to find. And then also the, the shorter term homelessness where people resolve it within a few months, they can be hard to count as well because they may just be sleeping on somebody's floor or in their garage or in their car and those people can be hard to find. So the numbers are really tricky, but according to the data we've got 30% or so. cross-cultural interaction, whether it's people from a different country or if we visit another country or um, just any cross-cultural interaction that we have with people who aren't from our same background, certain barriers can make those interactions challenging. Has anyone ever, for example, lived abroad or spent time with any of the immigrant communities here in San Diego? If you've ever had that kind of a cross-cultural interaction, you know what I'm talking about. You know, There's just people do things different from how we do them, and we don't understand why they're doing it that way. And it can be really easy to think, why don't you just, why don't you do it the way that's normal to me? You know, why are you acting strangely? But really, all that is, is it's a different culture. And people in different cultures do things differently. When we interact with the chronically homeless community, Part of the reason it can be hard is just culture shock. It's just, it's a different community with its own sort of cultural norms. And if we don't know what those are, just like in any cross-cultural interaction, it can be confusing as to why people are doing the things that they're doing. And it can be easy to just think, why don't you just do it the way that I would with my cultural background? You know, and so there's there's an element of just humility and just recognizing that it is a cross-cultural interaction like any other, and we've got to take the time to learn first. Okay, how does this culture operate? Let me understand that first before I sort of come in with all my great ideas of how it should be different. Another barrier for why these interactions can be tough sometimes is, again, we tend to be very materialistic in what we think about poverty in general, and homelessness as well. So we tend to think food, clothing, shelter as the number one top priorities. And we don't necessarily think of the, the, the social and spiritual side of things, of just kindness, you know, acceptance, welcoming, friendship, as equally vital, vital parts of our response to poverty and homelessness. Death and suffering denial, this is, this is an American thing. In, in our American culture, we don't like to think about death, and we don't like to think about suffering. We, we put old people and sick people as far out of sight as we can, because just our culture has this 
attitude that we should always be getting better, our society has all the wealth, has all the technology, we sh shouldn't still have things like people sleeping on our sidewalks, clearly suffering sick right outside our doors. When we live in the, America's finest city, you know, the most powerful nation in the world, we shouldn't have that level of suffering visible to us. And so we try to make it go away. We try to hide it or ignore it or not think about it. But part of that's just a human instinct to not want to deal with reality. But I think a big part of that is it's our American culture that we don't like to think about pain and suffering. But when we do that, we have to hide real people. We have to get real people off of our sidewalks. You know, we have to look the other way to avoid making eye contact with somebody who's in suffering. And so that obviously is a huge barrier to actually interacting with people. And we don't want to face the fact that they're suffering like that in our community. Then we are forced to ignore real human beings. This quote at the bottom I just heard the other day, it just like totally convicted me that the poor tell us who we are. The prophets tell us who we could be. So we hide the poor and kill the prophets. <laughs> we do that. And I think we do it all too much in the church as well, when we ought to be people who embrace the poor and heed the prophets. But we tend to fall into this just kind of get it away from me mentality as well. The savior complex, um, it's easy to think, again, when we don't understand people, it's easy to think that the solution to their problem is so obvious to us. If, we can, if I can just come in and tell you exactly everything that you need to do to get yourself cleaned up and get a job and get an apartment just like I do, then that'll make everything easier, right? But if you've ever, if you've ever had an experience in life where you've tried to help somebody and it hasn't gone as quickly or as smoothly as you thought it would, then you know what I'm talking about. The savior complex thing can cause us to so quickly burn out because problems are so much more complex than we expected them to be. They're over our heads. Uh, so a big part of this is just the humility of, you know what, I don't understand. I don't understand why you're doing what you're doing. It's not what I would do. But I'm not going to have this mentality of I have all the answers for you. I'm just going to come alongside and, and learn from you and support you. That, that type of mentality goes a lot further. It has a lot more traction than the safety complex. The biggest way to humanize homelessness is to learn human stories. Any issue or problem, political controversy, becomes different to us when it's real faces, real names, real people that we know. We can debate issues out there that don't touch us easily, and it just stays as an abstract problem. But when it's real people that you know, you know their story, you know their personality, you know their sense of humor, you've seen them cry, when it's real human stories, it's not just an issue. It's your friends, it's people that you care about. It's totally the same with homelessness. When it's real people that you know, that you love, homelessness isn't just a problem out there. It's 
It's a human issue. It's human suffering. I want to re refer you to this really cool website, talesofthestreet.com. It, this woman, it, it's many people actually from our homeless ministry at Lano Fellowship because she's right there in the Bankers Hill area. And she's just an independent person who goes out and interviews people and learns their story and takes these beautiful photos of them. So I'm not going to walk through all these people's stories because that would take way too long. But talesofthestreet.com, check it out, read some stories, you know, get a grasp of who these people are, how they got there. It'll help. It'll definitely help humanize homelessness for you. So the church's role, again, like I said at the beginning, the church ought to be a place where people from all different social groups come together and humanize each other. That's definitely the case when it comes to homelessness. Um, so the church ought to be a place of welcome where people of all different types can come and find a sense of belonging. And that will really help with people's feeling like they're completely on the outside of society, like Bartimaeus outside Jericho, if we can welcome them into our Christian communities. Now let's talk about some of the factors that lead people into homelessness. Um, obviously it's complex for every person. And there are people from all walks of life who end up in this situation. I mean, I have met pastors, I've met engineers, met business owners, people with master's degrees. And then I've also met people who have just been in grinding poverty and their mom was and their grandma was and it's generational and they've never known anything except grinding poverty. The, the diversity of experiences is really broad. But I will say that for that chronically homeless population that I mentioned, the most visible side, the people with the signs and the tents, there's often uh, an observable pattern. It's not uniform, but there's an observable pattern of how a lot of people end up in that type of situation. So that's what I want to walk through. This recipe for homelessness. So let's say you start out in life already with a lot of the disadvantages of poverty. Low level of education, your parents don't have a stable income, there's a lot of financial stress at home all the time. That can lead to a lot of mental and emotional stress, you know, just because of that situation of being in poverty. You may experience forms of discrimination, racism, classism, your neighborhood doesn't have, you know, the resources that more affluent neighborhoods have. So you start, let's say you start out in life already with a lot of these disadvantages. Then you layer on top of that some traumatic childhood experiences. A parent going to prison, being put in the foster care system, experience physical or sexual abuse, being around violence. Those traumatic childhood experiences make deep impressions on people from a young age, especially when they're cumulative when you're around violence throughout your childhood, or when your parents are gone or absent or unavailable throughout your childhood, it really affects people's mental and emotional health. Now layer on top of that, 
a disabling condition or multiple disabling conditions, a, a, a disabling conditions. Whether it's a drinking problem or it's a painkiller problem or it's chronic back pain from working a minimum wage job for 30 years or it's PTSD from the time you were assaulted or you came back from war, etc. All of these mental, uh, physical, and substance abuse issues all work a lot of the same ways in the sense that they disable people from being able to resolve the problems that arise in life and they just, people get stuck. Now if you're, if you're already, if you've got all three of these things going on already, you were raised with all the disadvantages of poverty, you had a lot of traumatic experiences in your childhood that made coping with life very difficult, and then you have a disabling condition on top of that, whether it's an addiction or a mental health issue or whatever it is, you're in an extremely vulnerable place. So all it takes is some tragedy or, or cataclysmic event in your life, like a divorce or a severe car accident or loss of your job or a landlord who takes advantage of you to come in and your safety net was this thin. And so when something like that happens, it just breaks and people fall. And that's how a lot of people end up homeless. So when, when we ask the question of why are you homeless, a lot of people will cite, you know, one of these issues, I got divorced, I lost my job, I got injured. And that's true, but all of us go through stuff like that, you know? How many people do we know who have lost a job or got divorced or been in a car accident? But when your whole life trajectory up to that point has already put you in such a vulnerable position to begin with when you're, you have no financial safety net, you have no social safety net, and your, your mental and emotional health is such that dealing with problems in life is very challenging, when an event like that happens, it can just spiral totally out of control. Any questions about this sequence? No, that was kind of a lot of information. Does it make sense? Yeah. I'm going to go through these three things really briefly. We could spend hours talking about all of them, but we don't have time. But I'm just going to briefly talk about trauma. So that's the uh, childhood trauma thing I mentioned. When people experience trauma, often their bodies remember that flight or fight, flight response long after the original event occurs. It's why sometimes people can be really jumpy or aggressive or you know, easily set off because their brain and their body are remembering the time when they were violated or attacked and it's like time to respond in that mode even though maybe the immediate situation isn't actually dangerous or threatening at all. That's, what, that's basically what PTSD does, does to the brain and the body. Good news, this is really hopeful. Having safe and secure experiences today really can help people recover from the trauma of their past. I think this is a, a place where the church, again, has a vital role to play. To feel safe and loved and seen today actually can have a, a, a neurobiological effect on the trauma of people's past. So, Showing kindness to somebody is 
a good thing to do, but it can actually be healing and transformative for somebody who has uh, trauma. Another one, mental illness. Mental illness has a lot, there's a lot of misconceptions about it out there. So, um, you know, mental illness is not caused by a lack of intelligence or integrity. You can't just will yourself out of it. It does not relegate everybody to a lifetime of homelessness at all. Even severe, mentally, severe mental illness does not mean that somebody has to just be stuck on the streets forever. And it certainly does not prevent people from becoming healthy, contributing members of society. But it does make coping with stress more difficult. And it can flare up and become very disabling at certain times and then go through a period of recovery. It can include hallucinations. Sometimes it does, depending on the mental illness, sometimes it doesn't. And it, there are effective treatments out there for many different kinds of mental illness. But this is just a universal truth. Mental health, for all of us, is tied with our community belonging and our positive relationships. We're not meant to be isolated individuals. It's bad for our mental health. So this is, again, a place where the church has an amazing gift to offer the homeless community and those who are struggling with mental illness, even severe mental illness. Come join us. Be a part of our community. Here's a place where you can belong. And that helps. It really helps people with their mental health issues. Finally, substance abuse. Obviously a huge issue. Lots of different reasons that people use drugs. I mean, and obviously it's extremely self-destructive, but in the moment, it can be an amazing way to escape. And when you're already at the bottom, when you're already disappointed in how your life turned out and you're disappointed in yourself and you may be angry at God or angry at people from your past, dealing with all of those emotions and memories and just overwhelming feeling of hopelessness, it's very tempting to turn to something that will just turn all of that off. So people, you know, people use substances for a lot of different reasons, but that's a huge one, it's just the avoidance. Again, relational and spiritual healing can help people become more resilient against substance abuse. It's almost impossible for an individual addict to just recover from their addiction totally on their own in isolation. It's just not how people work. It's definitely not how addictions work. We need to address our issues with God, find spiritual peace, and we need to have supportive people around us who, again, give us a place to belong, an identity, you know, a, a, a feeling of family. It's crucial for recovery from addiction. Spiritual homelessness. We talked about in the beginning about how the, the spiritual pain is a huge part of people's experience of homelessness. The shame, the guilt, the, the feeling of distance from God. This is actually scientifically uh, demonstrable that when you have that acute spiritual uh, distress, it affects all parts of life. 
And we know this. We know that we need God, that human beings are made for their creator. And then without that sustaining, life-giving relationship with our creator, we suffer. And it affects us in ways that we may not realize. And that's certainly true for people experiencing homelessness as well. Hopefully all that information I know is a lot. It's kind of just getting into some deep stuff. Talking about trauma and mental illness, I know it's a lot to take in. But I think it's important because, again, if, unless we have an understanding of who people are, their humanity, it's hard for us to relate, talk, just engage in conversation or see people as, as potential friends unless we have some understanding for where they're coming from. So hopefully all of the humanizing and contextualizing of homelessness now brings us to a place where we can talk about, okay, what can we do? What can we as Christians and as the church do to build transformative relationships with the poor? So that's actually a trick question. <laughs> because first, let's think about who are the poor. I stole this from the Chalmers Center, which is out in North Carolina. They, they produced the book, When Helping Hurts. If anybody's familiar with that. I love this, but we gotta walk through it slowly so that we all get it. Okay. Brokenness of the materially poor, people who are in actual economic poverty, people who are homeless. These are our four key relationships that we as human beings are made for. Our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationships with other people, and our relationships with the rest of creation. If all these things are totally in line, that's human flourishing. When there's brokenness in any of these relationships, it can man manifest itself in different ways. For the materially poor, a broken relationship with God can look like a total lack of hope, a just a feeling like nothing's ever going to change. My life is always going to be like this. God doesn't care about me. The lack of hope. For like a broken relationship with self can look like low self-esteem, shame, lack of self-respect feeling like you're just below everybody else that you see. Bro broken relationship with others often looks like estrangement from family or dysfunctional family relationships, cycles of codependency or abuse or abandonment. And a broken relationship with creation can manifest itself as unemployment or lack of productive activity in society. <clears throat> That's the... That's the materially poor. So we know what that looks like. If someone has no hope, no self-esteem, no good relationships in their life, and they're unemployed, that's, I mean, that's a recipe for poverty. That's a recipe for homelessness. But let's look at the flip side of that, too. Because there's other ways that these broken relationships can manifest themselves for those who are not poor, those who are financially doing OK. Sometimes a broken relationship with God can manifest itself as materialism, as a focus on acquiring more things, acquiring status, just an earthly focus that ignores 
the spiritual realm or what God would have us do. That's a broken relationship with God. Broken relationship with self can manifest itself as pride or that savior complex that we talked about. An inflated ego. That's a, just as much a broken relationship with self as the shame and low self-esteem is. Broken relationship with others can look like radical individualism. It's just about individual achievement, not about how our family or how our community is doing. It doesn't go beyond just, you know, what's on my resume. That's a broken relationship with others. Being addicted to work is just as much a broken relationship with creation as being unemployed, right? Now here's the thing, if you combine workaholism, radical individualism, pride, and materialism, that's a recipe for wealth. That's a recipe for success in the world. But the problem is that it's also based on broken relationships with what it means to be human. Does that make sense? So we've got, when it looks like this, it looks like poverty. When it looks like this, it looks like wealth and success. But both of these groups are fundamentally broken in the, most, in the ways that are most important to us as human beings. So when we ask, who are the poor? It's not just the homeless or people who struggle financially. It's we are the poor. We all have these broken relationships. Our relationships with God, self, others, and creation are dysfunctional in different ways. And it can manifest itself differently depending on the context. But there's an element to this where we've got to be able to see ourselves in others. Got to recognize our own brokenness in order to recognize and, and validate and heal the brokenness in other people. But now I'm going to actually up the ante on you guys even more. I'm going to say not only are we all poor, but in some ways, those who are economically poor have certain advantages over us when it comes to Jesus. Because our culture values material wealth, right? How much you have. But what does Jesus say about that? He says, life does not consist in abundance of possessions. Our culture also values knowledge and education. The more degrees you have, the more impressive a person you are. But Jesus rejoices that God, you know, he says to God, you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to children and the uneducated. So Jesus flips that one too. Our culture values beauty and youth. We spend so much money pursuing beauty and youth. But Jesus says, do not judge by our appearances. We value, again, individualistic ambition, achievement, having an impressive resume, having an impressive LinkedIn profile, etc. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's not just about what you achieve as an individual. You're a part of this larger community. <clears throat> we value compensation based on merit. You get in whatever, you get out whatever you put in. And that's kind of the, the basic ethos of a free market society. 
But Jesus says, the first will be last at the end of the day. Remember the parable where the workers come in at the 11th hour of the day and they end up getting paid just as much as the ones who are working all day? Jesus messes with this idea that we have, that it's just compensation based on merit. He challenges that. We, we value transactional relationships. I'll do for you what you can do for me. But Jesus says, freely you've received from God. So freely give without expecting anything in return. We value self-promotion and publicity. We love posting photos of ourselves helping the poor on Instagram. Jesus says, when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets. Don't make it about the recognition that you get. Make it about doing something to God through helping another person. So the reason I'm calling this a gospel for the poor is because I think a lot of these ideas that Jesus teaches are easier for poor people to understand. I've noticed this. When we have wealth, education, beauty, ambition, merit, transactional relationships, and self-promotion, it's hard to hear from Jesus that he's largely dismissive of our values. Jesus doesn't reinforce our values that we have as people who are financially well off or affluent. He challenges them over and over. But people in poverty who don't have all those same things and therefore not all those same values, I've seen how it's easier for them to take these words of Jesus and not only to receive them but to be, but to be given so much hope by them, to be told you know, the first shall be last. There's going to be a, a reversal. It may, you know, our culture may value certain things and dismiss other, other groups and other people, but there's going to be a reversal of that. That's incredibly inspiring and hopeful for people, along with all these other things that Jesus said. So not only are we all poor in our own ways, but we as Christians have a lot to learn from people in poverty. Jesus is trying to get through to us sometimes, through them. So let's listen. <clears throat> a lot of these ideas we've already talked about, but foundations of relationship building. In order to build transformative relationships with the poor, to become friends with people from a very different background, we've got to recognize our shared brokenness, our shared poverty and not see this as, I'm a whole, healthy, well-off person, and you are super messed up. No. I have broken relationships of my own with God, self, others, and creation. So do you. I can see myself in you. Which leads into humility. It's crucial. Just to approach people humbly. You know what? You may have something to teach me. I don't necessarily have all the answers for you. Let's learn from each other. Focusing on commonalities. We're all human beings with a basic desire for love, basic desire for relationship with our creator, basic desire for acceptance, for meaning. No, nobody's exempt from that. We can see those things in other people, even if their, their life experience is very different from ours. Kindness. Kindness goes a long way. I don't, I don't need to elaborate on that one, because you know it. You've experienced it from others, how impactful it is for someone to just reach out and say a kind word. 
It's a foundation for relationship building. Finally, time and practice. Just over time, seeing the same people, having kind interactions repeatedly, and just practicing this humility leads to relationship building. People see it. They, they feel it from you. When you come at them with humility and kindness, it's very palpable. And over time, it opens doors for conversations, for relationships, for spiritual conversations. It's that, that foundation of just investing the time. As Christians, we have the gifts of the gospel to give those who are homeless. The list is very long. I just want to highlight two quickly. Gifts of the gospel that we have to offer people that's transformative. The first one is spiritual peace. It's forgiveness and grace. The message that Jesus has done it all to give you forgiveness and make you right with God. You can have peace. Just trust him. Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens and give you rest. That's an amazing gift to somebody to just lay their spiritual anxieties and fears to rest and give them peace through the gospel. The second one is the power to make choices, meaning sometimes homelessness and poverty can feel so powerless. It seems like there's just nothing you can do to change your situation. One of the gifts of the gospel is this empowerment that you, you are given this ability to actually make choices, that the truth sets you free. You're not just a cog in a machine. You're not just being run over by society, but you're an individual valued by God, and he's empowering you to look at your life critically and see, do I have an opportunity to do something different? I'm not, I'm not just purely a victim. I may be a victim, but I'm not purely a victim. I'm not purely helpless. The gospel empowers people to make choices, make different choices. And that's a huge gift in helping people get out of the mentality that keeps them trapped in homelessness. When we build transformative relationships with the poor, we're modeling Jesus. His first relationship was always with his father. But all, all his, well, the rest of his time was spent on his human relationships with his disciples and with everyone that he encountered, many of whom were poor, suffering, sick, disabled. So he models that for us. He didn't stand distantly apart from people. He drew near. Like Bartimaeus, he saw him. He spoke to him. He ignored the naysayers. And how many other stories from the Gospels do we see where Jesus draws near to the one person that everybody else avoids. It's scandalous. His grace and mercy for marginalized people is truly scandalous. At the same time, Jesus wasn't dictated by the whims of the crowd. He knew how to draw boundaries. He knew how to take time for himself and prioritize his own relationship with God first. That's also a lesson for some of us who may be so empathetic and so easily caught up in other people's problems that suddenly we, we don't know who we are anymore and we're neglecting the other aspects of our life. Jesus didn't do that. He knew how to set boundaries. 
Finally, he demonstrated love more than with just his healing and his you know, tangible helping of people, though of course that was huge, but also simply with his presence, his demeanor, his insightful questions that challenged people, his truth telling, his demonstration of the character of God through the way that he interacted with people. Jesus does that all throughout his ministry. And we can model that, too, just in our presence, our demeanor towards people, our availability. It models Christ. Okay, I'm going to wrap up um, pretty soon. I just want to talk about two issues that get raised a lot in settings like this. And then if there's any other questions at the end, I would love to hear from you guys. But these are sort of two things that it's like everybody enjoys the content about learning about homelessness, but there's these red flags that may be on some of your minds. So let's see. The first one is danger. Does anybody worry about just the practicalities of danger on the streets? Yeah, it's understandable. So I just want to make a couple comments about that first. Um, first of all, that many homeless people are victims of crime far more often uh, than they are perpetrators of crime, especially women and people who are mentally disabled. Um, many homeless people are victimized repeatedly, and it's really tragic. Um, on the other hand, some homeless people have committed violent crimes. Many of them will never do so again, but some of them will. So, you know, some people out there might still be dangerous. It's true. Um, sometimes it takes, it takes a little bit of getting to know a community, kind of developing an eye and an ear for things to watch out for, to be able to tell who might still be dangerous and who, who's not a friend at all. <clears throat> Disclaimer about mental illness. I think a lot of times when we see somebody out there acting erratically or, or you know, gesturing or talking loudly, it can be easy to just think, oh, they're mentally ill, um, and therefore they might be dangerous. That's, that's largely um, inaccurate in the sense that most forms of mental illness do not manifest violently at all. Sometimes in an acute psychiatric crisis where somebody is, is, is just in a moment of high symptom of their mental illness, there may be some risk of acting out. But it's not very common. Um, and most people who deal with mental illness are not violent at all. And their mental illness does not correspond to a higher level of aggression. So that's that's a stereotype that we've got to be really careful about. Um, on the other hand, something, that, something that's out there that does increase people's aggression is the most common street drug in San Diego, which is crystal meth. It's so destructive to people's minds and bodies. It's, and it's just heartbreaking. But it is true, there is truth to that stereotype, that meth and other drugs can alter people's behavior and cause them to have violent mood swings and be more aggressive than they normally would be if they weren't on that substance. 
So I'm trying to be balanced here. You know, I want to dispel some of the stereotypes that being mentally ill does not mean you're violent. Being a homeless person does not mean you're a criminal. Um, th those stereotypes are not true. But it is true that meth and other drugs does increase rates of violence. And also that, you know, there are some individuals on the streets who are out there because of uh, a past of criminal or violent behavior. So I know that that's kind of a mixed bag to take in, but any questions about this specifically about the danger aspect? Yeah. No, you go. Yeah, I guess how can you distinguish? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's the homeless community about a mile from our house, and yeah. you know, kind of like how how do we approach? You know, what's a good thing you're gonna do this? So like, what's a good mm -hmm. first step? Yeah. Then when it comes to danger, you know, like right. what's something to look out for? Be like, okay, you know, this isn't dangerous. This is. I don't know. Sure. People, people who are just talking to themselves, at least in my experience, not usually dangerous. Um, people who are yelling at the world, you know, whether because they're on something or they're having a psychiatric crisis or they're just having a really, really bad day, which happens a lot when you're homeless, just horribly frustrating things happen and people verbalize it, that, that's a situation where it's better to just keep your distance. Um, if somebody is showing any signs of being intoxicated, I mean, you know, slurring speech or just violently gesturing or, you know, those types of things, it's best to just not engage with somebody when they're in that state. Um, I would say with, with like homeless camps where you've got a lot of people all in one area, um, I recommend caution with those. Um, part of it is that sort of chronically homeless culture I was talking about. There may be, there may be things going on that within the community you can spot and you can see, oh, this person has a more dominating presence here, this person's more, less um, intimidating. But as an outsider, without having all that cultural knowledge, um, there may be a lot of things going on that we just don't see, we don't pick up on the nuances. So when it's like that, when it's kind of a camp of people, I would generally recommend caution. Individuals who are, you know, if you see somebody panhandling or just an individual who's out and about, um, who doesn't, uh, doesn't appear to be intoxicated, there, it's very, there's a low chance that they're going to be any sort of threat to you. Um, most people are very peaceful uh, and love, would love the opportunity to talk to somebody. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Which brings me to the second thing. What about panhandling? This is a question that comes up all the time. Um, so like I just said, if somebody's visibly intoxicated or exhibiting aggression, and you know what aggression looks like, you know, yelling, threatening gestures, the body posturing in an aggressive way. Just don't, don't, that's not a good time to talk to somebody. Just keep walking, no need, no need to engage. So keep your own safety first. If it's safe, if they're calm, you know, if they're just there um, 
sort of sitting or, or standing or whatever, make eye contact with somebody. It means so much just to be seen, just to have someone say hello. Um, I would say more often than not, to, see, to have somebody say, hi, good morning, how are you, is a more positive interaction for most people than a dollar in a cup and a, with, with no eye contact or no personal engagement. Um, those human gestures of kindness mean a lot to people, they really do. So personally engage. Take time to read the situation. Now this one, this one's important. Sometimes, both because of our just unfamiliarity with how homeless, homelessness works, and also through that, that sort of savior complex that can arise, like, oh, you're in distress. How, what can I do to resolve this for you immediately? It can be easy to get sucked into apparently emergency situations because we're not taking the time to ask critical questions and make, you know, clarify what the situation is and get a better grasp of what's really going on with this person before we want to jump into action mode. This happened at First Presbyterian Church last week. One of our pastors, um, a guy showed up at the door on a Saturday, so I wasn't there. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm expected to die within the next 48 hours. And I want to plan my funeral with the pastor. Can I sit and talk to you about planning my funeral? Because I'm going to die in the next two days. And Pastor Jeff was sort of boggled by the situation, but just kind of went with it and said, okay, let's sit down and talk about your funeral, I guess. He was just thrown off by the sort of crisis mode that was thrown upon him so suddenly. Nothing bad happened, but he did spend an hour and a half with this person and then realized that planning a funeral was not the real issue that this guy was dealing with. It was a, it was a way to get access to a pastor, you know what I mean? But it wasn't really the thing that was going on with him. So in a situation like that where somebody, it's like, is this really an emergency? Like, are you really going to die within 48 hours? It's okay to just slow everything down and ask some questions and get a grasp of what's really going on before jumping into emergency mode. Um, that applies to panhandlers as well. Um, it's okay to slow down and ask some questions and get some clarification with somebody before just immediately going for cash. And again, sometimes it can be a lot easier to just give something immediately and not take the time to have a conversation with somebody, but it's, it's a lot better to, to slow it down, take the time to read the situation and get clarification about what's really going on before getting sucked into you know, an acute need, or what looks like an acute need. It may be less of an emergency than it first appears. Any questions about that? Hopefully that, hopefully that helps. I would just encourage you to ask more questions before jumping into action. Now, if you do, if, you're, if the interaction is safe, if the interaction is positive, and you feel like giving somebody money, you can. Most people will spend it on food. Um, some people will spend it on drugs. There's no way to tell unless you really know somebody. 
Um, most people will spend it on food, though. That's true. So it's kind of, I, there's no secret formula to know how to respond to people asking for money other than be kind, be safe, ask questions. Don't feel bad if you can't. If you, if you don't feel comfortable or if you just, it's just, it doesn't seem like the right thing to do in the moment, just say, sorry, I can't. I hope you have a good day. That's fine. Yeah. Um, it's still kinder to respond to somebody, give them a verbal response, instead of just ignoring them. So I do that, I, you know, I walk around downtown all the time, it happens. And my personal policy is just, if I hear it, if I see it, I'll look at somebody and say, I'm sorry I can't, but I hope you have a good day. That's it. People almost always respect that. It's still humanizing though. It's still a gesture of kindness, even if it's not a monetary exchange. Last thing, and then I'll wrap up. If you have a, a daily commute or a path where you see the same person over and over again, that's an awesome opportunity because that's somebody that you could actually build a relationship with. It's not just a one-time exchange. It's, that's somebody who is a part of your community. They have their place in your community too. Um, and if you see them regularly, take five minutes to just say, hi, what's your name? How long have you lived here? You know, um, how's your day going? Those little niceties can go so far. Quick anecdote and then I'll wrap up. Um, I used to live in Bankers Hill and there was a homeless guy outside my apartment building all the time. And I just always saw him. And uh, he always had really interesting clothing on and a scraggly beard and he would talk to himself sometimes. But over time, I just, you know, would always see him and just say hi. Eventually learned his name. Um, you know, we would have a couple conversations here and there. Sometimes he'd be in the mood to talk, sometimes he wouldn't. Eventually, this you know, months and months of just having these little exchanges with him, learned out that he, found out that he was a Christian, a devout Christian, who had quite a testimony to tell of how he became a Christian. Um, and it was fascinating, and I just developed a casual relationship with this guy. And then I started working at First Presbyterian Church, and it turns out he was a regular there, and had been for a long time. And um, long story short, we ended up working together with another organization to get him housed, to get him on the meds that he was supposed to be taking for his mental illness, to get the, him the health care that he really needed. And by the end of his life, he ended up passing away from cancer. By the end of his life, he was healthier than he had been in 40 years. And, you know, obviously that was a unique situation because, we, you know, we had this whole organization to help him out. But it started really just with a very casual conversation outside of my apartment building. And got to know him and just his likes and dislikes and his background. And he was a really wonderful person. Truly wonderful person. So if you have anybody like that who's in your neighborhood or on your commute to work or outside the church, take a few minutes, say hi, see, see if you can get to know somebody. Uh, you never know what could happen. And if all it is is just an interaction of human kindness, you know, somebody sees you, somebody cares about you, 
and through this person you feel the love of God for you. That's such a gift. It's a huge gift. Okay. Any questions? <laughs> do you want to tell us a little bit about the mentorship program? Yeah, I'd love to. So we primarily partner with a shelter downtown that's called PATH, People Assisting the Homeless. Um, they have a program there where uh, it's, it's a roughly 90-day stay, so people come in off the streets, and then within 90 days, although it's often much longer than that, find housing of some kind. So we partner with them. Um, I, you know, promote the program to the shelter residents and say, if you're looking for a mentor or somebody to help accompany you on your journey out of homelessness, I've got volunteers available. And then if somebody is sort of working on getting out of homelessness, doing what they need to do to get through that process, and if I interview them and get to know their background, how did they become homeless, et cetera, so kind of do a screening. Once they're ready, pair them up with a volunteer, any of you. Um, Many of, them are, many of our volunteers are Christian, which is awesome because then there can be, if the person's open to it, there can be a spiritual component too. Um, pair those two people up, have them introduce themselves to each other, and then the goal is that they would meet together once a week for about an hour over a period of six months. And that the mentor's role is, is essentially to encourage, provide feedback, provide accountability, just be a listening ear as this person goes through the complicated and difficult process of getting out of homelessness. And in, in our case, I would say the majority of people who meet with their mentor and mentee for that six month period, by the end of it, they consider themselves friends and a lot of people continue to meet after that point. The idea is the, the, the biggest focus of the program is on that transition period from shelter from the streets to shelter to apartment. Each of those steps is very difficult for people to make those transitions. So to have at least one individual who is there through it all, who's there when you move from the shelter to the apartment and can say, you're not crazy, you can do this, you can handle this, you can pay your bills, you know, that just that encouragement and positivity um, can be a really significant help to people in that transition. When there are people who are coming out of that, typically in your experience, mm -hmm. find housing. How, how they, how far out is it? Um, it can be far out, although I would say a lot of times people end up in City Heights, El Cajon, National City. Um, those are probably the three of the top destinations for people. All of which are, if you've, if you've got a car, they're doable. Um, a fair number of people stay downtown. Yeah, there's a lot of low-income apartment buildings downtown. So it, some people do end up farther away, but I'd say that's roughly the radius. That's City Heights to El Cajon to National City. So it actually is the opportunity for people who maybe don't live downtown. Yeah. Because you. True. But people may be moving into your neighborhood. That's true. And you're already there. And through become accustomed to your name. That's very true. Good point. Yeah. Is there any intelligence um, like 
That's a great question. Um, yeah. So it all starts a level up above homelessness with just housing more generally, because in San Diego specifically and in California as a whole, we just don't have enough housing that people can afford. And so, you know, it's kind of like that, that uh, recipe for homelessness slide. You've got a whole lot of people who are right there on the brink, but then the less housing that there is and the more rent goes up, the more people fall into the homeless category. So on the, when it comes to legislation, legislation that supports increasing our amount of housing and our affordability of housing massively impacts the homeless situation. There are, there are hundreds or even thousands, I, I forget the exact number, I think it's over a thousand people in San Diego who have a Section 8 or equivalent voucher that would pay for their rent, but there's no apartment for them to go to. And so they have the money to pay for an apartment but nowhere to go and they're still homeless even though they waited to get, the typical waiting list for a Section 8 voucher is 10 years. Um, and that's just, I mean, that's just tragic, that people would wait that long and then still be stranded on the streets. So legislation that supports housing, denser housing, housing that's closer to transit, housing that's more affordable, all of that really helps with homelessness. One more, one more tag on that. Um, homelessness spending that's geared more towards housing as opposed to just intermediate emergency shelter. Emergency shelter is great and important, but it doesn't house people, housing does. So sometimes legislatures do emergency funding because it's, it's kind of more glamorous in the moment. Oh, we threw up another shelter, we got 300 people off the street. But you didn't really get 300 people off the street. You just got them into a shelter. They still don't have a physical home. So if there's ever a, a choice on a ballot kind of between those two things, I would urge the longer term solution of housing affordability rather than the kind of more glamorous, immediate, quick fix. Yeah. Are there other ways to get involved if somebody feels like, oh, I can't make a weekly Yes. Yes, definitely. You can always come volunteer with us at the Ladle Fellowship up at First Press. We do a meal on Sundays and Wednesdays. Wednesday nights especially are an awesome opportunity to really engage in ministry because we teach a Bible study and then we have dinner afterwards. So it's just an awesome time to sit down at a table with a group of people and just say, how's everybody doing? What do you think of the Bible study? Did that, you know, any thoughts on that? And it's just a really cool time of fellowship. And you could just come on any given Wednesday. Um, but there's also a lot of other volunteering opportunities. If you go to the Downtown Fellowship website, sdfellowship.com, sdfellowship.com, we've got a page on there of volunteer opportunities. And then I, I put the link for mentorship because, of course, that's my favorite thing. But, but there's other volunteer opportunities on our website as well. Our time is 
way too valuable for us to give it away. That's our growth commitment. So if you're going to make an impact on your own life, as well as the lives of your fairly poor, that you have got to give up the thing that is the absolute most valuable to you. Mm. And it will change everyone. Yeah. Thank you, Jackie. Okay, what's on there? I, I Does a lot of you have uh, a next step like they want to involved? Do they just go on the uh, website and get the form? Go on the website or just contact me. <coughs> Call me, text me, send me an email, and I'll send you all the information. Or we can just chat about it. If you're not, maybe membership's right for you, maybe not. We can just have a conversation about what you might be interested in doing. Feel free to reach out to me. I do have um, two things. Downtown Fellowship puts together these little care guides, which just have basic resources for the homeless in the downtown area. If you keep a couple of these in the wallet or in your car, and if you end up getting into a conversation with somebody, it might be really nice to have something with a lot of information in one place. Also, I want to leave these here with the church. Maybe there, I don't know if there's like a we welcome area. Okay. okay, cool. And then I also just have a stack of my business cards. Feel free to call. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.